Please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, if you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 841. And this morning uh, we're looking at verses 14 to verse 30. Mark 6, at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. When we began our series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark's Gospel begins with a description of a man named John. John, which we oftentimes today refer to as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, He was a famous man, uh, both in Scripture but he's also referred to outside of scripture, which is a reminder to us that as we're coming to these accounts, we're not simply dealing with stories. These are not fables, these are not legends. These are real people who lived in space, time, and history. John was a real person. He was a person whose ministry was described at the beginning of Mark's gospel in a couple of ways. 
He was one who was out in the wilderness calling the people to a, a washing ceremony, a baptism of repentance, which he said was for the forgiveness of sins. And we're told that the people on mass came to him. For hundreds of years, there had not been a prophet amongst the people of God. For hundreds of years, there was no prophecy. And now this man, John, emerges, and people en masse collectively acknowledge that this man is a prophet of God. And so his ministry is described for us at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And as we come to Mark chapter 6, we are being given an account of the end of John's ministry. What happened to this John? And we learn that John was beheaded. He was killed for his faith. He was killed for what he stood for. He was killed for speaking out against the civil authorities. And Mark wants us to understand what happened to John. But it's important that as we understand what happened to John, what it is ultimately showing us about other characters in Mark's gospel. Namely, what it teaches us about Herod what it teaches us about ourselves, but also what it teaches us about Jesus himself. And so this morning we want to think about how it is that John the Baptist, this man who was recognized as a prophet, why it is that he was executed by the leader of Galilee, why it is that Herod had him put to death. And we want to look at it in these two thoughts that are mentioned in the bulletin. We want to think about the controversy and the conflict that emerged. First, there is uh, the controversy. We are told uh, back in Mark 6 that the fame of Jesus was spreading. You see that in verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it. That is, he heard of the fame of Jesus. Jesus' fame has been spreading all throughout Galilee. And you remember that Jesus has just sent out his 12 disciples. And they were sent to the lost house uh, of the sheep of Israel. They are to proclaim to them that the kingdom of God is at hand and that the Israelites en masse are to respond to Jesus because the king has come. And so as Jesus is going out, as his works are becoming known, his fame is spreading. And now we're told that even Herod has heard of Jesus. This is getting more widespread that even the rulers of Galilee know about this man, Jesus. Well, who's Herod? One of the tricky things about the Bible is, is that there are lots of Herods. And so it's hard to sometimes keep them all straight. But we can remember, for instance, that with the birth narratives of Jesus, there was a Herod mentioned. You remember that there was the wise men who came uh, to Jerusalem and they said that they had seen his star. And they had come to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. And we have come to worship him. And so they said, where is the child who was born? king of the Jews. When those wise men came to Jerusalem, uh, they were coming to Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a vassal king. That is, he was a king over Palestine by the appointment of the Roman Empire. His authority was submissive to the Roman allegiance. And so he wasn't really all that powerful, but he was under the Roman Empire and put in position by the Romans. But he was known as Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had uh, uh, rule over Palestine. But when Herod the Great died, his, his kingdom was divided into four. And so there was uh, four sons of his that took up his reign. 
and each of them were known as a ruler of the fourth, or what we sometimes hear is that word tetrarch. If you've ever heard of Herod the tetrarch, that is meaning Herod, a ruler of a fourth. And four of his sons took over his reign, and one of them is the Herod that is being mentioned here, Herod Antipas. Uh, he is the same Herod that is mentioned just before Jesus is crucified. And so there are different Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. There's also a Herod mentioned in the book of Acts as well. But here we're dealing with Herod the Great's son. Uh, and he is uh, a governor uh, over Galilee. Uh, he is one that is uh, put in, in place uh, to rule. And so uh, here uh, Herod Antipas uh, hears about Jesus uh, being a ruler in the region of Galilee. So the fame of Jesus is spreading, uh, and it's evoking all kinds of ideas. And you see some of those ideas mentioned in verse 14. Some people say that this, this means it's John the Baptist raised from the dead, uh, which could mean that they're seeing this as a continuity, that the same spirit that was in John has carried on now in this man Jesus. Just as Elijah had the spirit of the Lord in his ministry, and then it was passed on to Elisha. So some people may have been thinking that Jesus is carrying on the prophetic work, the ministry of John the Baptist. God is carrying on his work through this man, Jesus. Others said it is Elijah. Because in the Old Covenant, one of the last prophecies was is that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. And so there was an expectation that Elijah was going to come. And scripture teaches us that ultimately that's what John the Baptist was fulfilling. And others said, well, this is like one of the prophets of old. And so amongst the people, there is this growing excitement about Jesus. That he is, he is accompanied with the spirit of God. He is, as a prophet of old, he is doing God's works. And there is this growing excitement. But it tells us in verse 16 that Herod Antipas was very certain of one thing. It is John the Baptist. And you notice why he comes to that conclusion. It is John whom I beheaded. Herod here has this strong conviction that he cannot shake. That this is his past coming back on him. That as much as he would like to shake off the effects of the choices he has made, he is still troubled by his past, knowing that he put to death a righteous man, knowing that he executed a man that was perceived to be a prophet by all. And now Herod's reaction to Jesus is, this is my past coming back to haunt me. Isn't it striking that we are creatures that have consciences. That we don't just do actions, but that we assess actions. And we don't just assess other people, we assess internally as well. Our conscience is like a moral compass, isn't it? It's always trying to direct us back to north. If you have a compass and you're trying to figure out the direction that you should go, you move the compass and you can see the direction aligning it uh, according to north. And our consciences are aiming to do that. They are a moral compass telling us what is the right way to go. 
Now, our consciences can be misdirected, our consciences can be seared, but the fact is, is that every one of us has a moral signal in us that not only restrains us in certain actions, but even after we do certain things, our conscience continues to signal to us that's not right. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we have consciences? It is, it is God's grace that he gives us that moral signal to restrain us from simply being reckless with what we do. It prevents us from doing all sorts of things, but it also impresses upon us the fact that our actions are weighty. We are creatures that continue to operate on the mindset of oughtness, of should, not just can, but should. I ought to do this. I ought not to do this. And here is Herod Antipas, who is now faced with a situation where he is reminded of something, I ought not to have done that. This is John come back from the dead, the John that I beheaded. And the question becomes, why did John do that? Or why did Herod do that? And then we're given something of a flashback into Herod's life. And we want to look at the controversy that led Herod in this path and the choice that Herod ultimately made. Well, first, there is the controversy itself. If we're going to understand this passage, we're going to have to do a little bit of history. And again, this might seem like a lot of details, but it is important for us to, to keep this all in our heads as much as we can. We said that there was Herod the Great. He was king over Galilee. He was given that title by the Roman Empire. But when he died, uh, his kingdom was given to the fourth, uh, to Aristopolis, to Philip, to Herod, and to Archelaus. Herod, though, had ten wives. Herod the Great had ten wives. And those four sons came from different women. So you have Aristopolis, you have Philip, you have Herod Antipas. They're all from different women. But they're all given rule of a fourth. So when we come to Herod Antipas, we're asking the question, who is this man? And there's a number of things that we need to realize. One, Herod Antipas was a married man. He was married to Aratas, who was the princess of the king of Nabataea. That was a region adjacent to the region ruled by Herod. So you know that this was a political marriage that was intended to ensure peace between these two regions. Herod Antipas was a married man to Aratas. But we know something else that is important about this situation. So was Herodias. Herodias was married to Philip. Philip is Herod Antipas's half-brother, a brother from another mother, but they're both sons of Herod the Great. More than that, we're told that Herod Antipas cultivates an infatuation with Herodias. In fact, he has an affair with Herodias, and ultimately he marries Herodias. But what is happening here is really a messy situation. And it's a messy situation because both of them are married. This is an affair that is taking place. They're both committing adultery at this point. But it goes even beyond adultery. What is happening here is incestuous. Because Herodias 
is married to his half-brother Philip. Herod Antipas and Philip are half-brothers. Philip is still alive. He's taking his brother's wife, and he's marrying her when she's married to Philip. Herod is someone who has links uh, to uh, the Old Covenant scriptures. He's someone who knows the law of God, and he knows that Leviticus teaches that you are not to uncover your brother's nakedness, or the, the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And anyone who does uncover his brother's wife's nakedness, it is an impurity. That is, it is an uncleanness. And so what is happening here is something that is wrong in Scripture. It is, it is an act of incest that is happening. Because it is taking his half-brother's uh, wife for himself. But it goes even beyond that. Because we also have to ask, who is the question of Herodias? And Herodias is the daughter of Herod Antipas's half-brother, Aristopolis. So she is his half-niece. And so this relationship is something of a scandal on multiple fronts. It is an adultery. But more than that, it is incestuous. And it is something that causes John the Baptist to speak out publicly against it. This is why John said you ought not to have her as your wife. It is not lawful for you to have her as your wife. You see, what John is appealing to is the fact that this isn't right, what you're doing. Herod Antipas was living his life as though he was unaccountable to anyone, that he did what he wanted to do. And John the Baptist confronted him saying, you're not a law unto yourself. You are still accountable unto God. And your actions are a violation of God's law. And so you begin to see what this controversy is spewing into. It is something that is undermining Herod Antipas's position and of Herodias's place in this relationship. And you begin to understand why there's so much uh, tension that is brewing uh, as a result. You think about our own time, since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, when people think about sexual behaviors and sexual activity, oftentimes things are reduced down to the factor of consent. If two parties are consenting, then it's okay. Now, consent is an important factor, but it's not the only factor when it comes to the question of sexual morality. And we only have to think about the question of incest to point that out. If you oppose incest, relations between family, on what grounds do you come to that? It's not on the grounds of consent, because Herod and Herodias were both consenting. The only grounds for opposing incest are by opposing or appealing to an objective standard beyond your feelings and beyond consenting parties. It is by acknowledging that there is something that sets the boundary of sexual morality. And that objective standard must go beyond you and even the opinions of the popular culture. It must go to something that is objective and that is standing, which is the law of God. 
That's what John was doing. John was saying, according to the law of God, what you're doing is a violation of righteousness. You're living as though you're a law unto yourself. And John was saying, you're not. You might be called king. You might be the governor of Galilee. But you're still accountable to the king of kings. And what you're doing is sin. That's why John was imprisoned. Because he was destabilizing that relationship. And Herod didn't want to be confronted with his sin. I said that John the Baptist is someone that is mentioned even outside the scriptures. And he is. There's a man, a Jewish historian, who lived during the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And he wrote a history of the Jewish people. And he submitted it to the Romans after their uh, nation was destroyed. His name was Josephus. And when Josephus wrote his history, he appealed to this instance of John the Baptist. And he explained it, and he explained it, we could say, even from the other side of the coin. He's looking at the exact same thing from a political standpoint. But he explains why Herod acted the way he did. And listen to what Josephus says. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over all the people, might put into his power the inclination to raise a rebellion. For they seemed ready to do anything that he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not to bring into any difficulties. What is Josephus saying? He's saying that the people believed John the Baptist to be a prophet. And they believed that John was declaring the truth by the law of God. And the people were supportive of John to such an extent that they weren't going to allow Herod to continue living in this incestuous relationship. And so now it becomes a threat to Herod. And so Herod arrests John for that very reason. But he won't put him to death because it would further complicate things. And so he has him in prison. He won't follow through in Herodias's desire to have him killed because he wants him to just not be a problem. But there's a controversy. He's living in sin. And the prophet of God is confronting him publicly and rebuking him for his sin. And he's trying to just make it all go away. But this controversy is not just going on around Herod. It's even going on within Herod. Notice down what it says in verse 20. It says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It says the, the, what is key there is that when he heard him, he heard him gladly. Herod knew of John's ministry. He heard about what John was trying to do. He was calling people to turn to the Lord. He was confronting them about their sin. He was telling them that they needed to seek the Lord's mercy while he may be found, that the Lord's coming was near. Herod delighted to hear this from John. He was, he was intrigued by what John was doing, and he wanted to hear more of it. He enjoyed hearing all the things that John was passionate about. And yet, at the same time, he was living in violation to what John was saying. And so John's message was one in which opposed Herod, and yet which also attracted Herod. 
And so there's a controversy within Herod as well, where he enjoys to hear the scriptures, but he's not living with the scriptures. And that can be true of anyone, isn't it? But isn't that a sad state to be in where we are people that enjoy to hear it, but we remain spectators, that we are we enjoy to debate about Christianity. We enjoy to talk about the existence of God. We enjoy hearing about the story of Jesus Christ until it challenges us, <clears throat> until it actually presses on a nerve and says, what you're doing is not right. And then we don't want to go any further. We want to keep at a distance from it. That's what we see in Herod, a man who is in conflict because he's living in contradiction to God's word. But there's not just a controversy around Herod's actions, but we see a choice that Herod ultimately makes. In verses 21 and following, we're told that an opportunity came uh, to put John to death, and it happened on Herod's birthday. There was a big banquet with all the bigwigs, with the military leaders, the commanders, the noblemen, uh, leaders of Galilee gathering together. And we are told that on this occasion that Herodias's daughter came and danced before Herod and his guests. And the king then made an offer. He said, ask whatever you want and I will give it to you, even if it is up to half of my kingdom. That Herod uh, doesn't actually have the right to give away half of his kingdom because it's not his kingdom. It's the Roman Empire's kingdom. But it's expressing his willingness to give generously. And when Herodias's daughter hears of this offer, she goes to her mother and her mother tells her what? Demand the head of John the Baptist. If you could be given that open-ended offer, what would you ask for? And Herodias says, kill John. Because that's the only way we're going to stabilize our relationship. And when Herod hears this, it tells us that Herod was sorry that he had made the oath. But he did not want to break his word and disappoint his guests. So whatever appreciation he had for John, he was willing to throw out for the sake of expediency. We can get rid of John if it's going to save my face. And so rather than saying that he was rash and wrongheaded for making such an offer, rather than refusing the request, he goes along with it. Because as one person says, he doesn't have the courage to refuse the request and admit that he spoke rashly. Herod was forced to choose, choose, and when he was forced, the thing that he was most concerned about was preserving his own desires, his own position, and his own relationship. He was a man who was described as a king, King Herod. But the irony is, is that Herod was actually a slave. He was a slave living for his passions. He couldn't let go of the one thing that was controlling him, which was Herodias. And when Herodias orchestrated this whole thing, Herod gave in and put to death a righteous man. He was a slave ruled by his passions. But Herod was like any other fallen sinner in this world. And outside of Christ, we are all like Herod. Because we are going to be all controlled by something. 
What is it that we want most? And if it's not God, it's going to be an idol. Herod's idol was Herodias. He wanted that relationship, and he wasn't going to give it up. When John confronted him, Herod could have simply acknowledged what he was doing was not right and broke it off. But he wasn't going to give it up. And that's the way sin is. Unless God takes hold of a person and changes their heart, they're going to continue to cling to their sin. And they're going to continue to live enslaved to their passions. And so although he enjoyed listening to John, he was prepared to discard him when it became too costly to keep him around. And so John was put to death. But this is in Mark's gospel, not just to tell us how John died. But you'll notice that Mark includes this account of John's death in context. It's in the context of Jesus sending out his 12. You notice that back in verses 7 through 8. Jesus sends out his 12. And it's not until verse 30 that that report is accomplished. Where the disciples come back and they tell Jesus all that they had done. What did Jesus send the 12 out for? He sent them out to declare to them the king has come. To make known to them the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so what Mark is highlighting is is that not only did John taste death on account of being faithful to the word of God. But that John is foreshadowing the experience of the one who would come after him. John is foreshadowing the one who would come who is mightier than he is. He is foreshadowing the ministry in the life of Jesus himself. That Jesus too would taste death. And Jesus too would be rejected by the leaders of men. But he would taste death not as a failure, not as a sign of defeat. Jesus would taste death in order to accomplish the rescue of sinners in order that they might become citizens in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus came into this world uh, to, to ultimately be rejected, not only morally as he was at Nazareth, but ultimately to give his own life. It tells us there, again in verse 14, when Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. From that point on, Jesus is on Herod's radar. The king of Galilee knows of this Jesus. Maybe you've seen those pictures or those videos of an aircraft uh, radar signal where you have uh, a, an airport uh, traffic controller that looks on a green radar screen and you see this airplane that's coming onto screen, onto radar. And from that point on, the aircraft control technician is watching and monitoring that plane. They're watching the movement of the plane, preparing for it to come. And from this point on, Herod is watching Jesus because here is someone that is hounding him, both in terms of conscience, but also one that poses a threat, who is going to challenge him with the righteousness of God's law. And so he is watching him. Later on, we are told, for instance, that someone came to Jesus and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus responded to that charge by saying, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. 
Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish except in Jerusalem. What was Jesus' answer? He knew that he was going to taste death, but he wasn't going to shrink back against Herod. He was going to declare the truth and make it known. John the Baptist died for declaring the truth of God's righteousness, for confronting Herod about his sin. Jesus died for confronting us not only with our sin, but for confronting us with God's grace. And yet he was still put to death. Why? Because people are still clinging to their idols. Because people don't want to be troubled about their sins. And so the question comes back to this issue of conscience. What do we do when our consciences convict us? Do we just suppress and say, what's done is done? Forgive myself and move on, pretend it never happened. Do I just keep speaking to myself and try and rationalize it away? Those can be pretty shallow counsels when our consciences are condemning us. The message of Christianity is, is that our consciences can be addressed. In and through the Lord Jesus, we can know that there is forgiveness of sins because he tasted death in order that we would be spared the judgment of God. And so as we think about Herod, we see someone who was rejecting the word of God. But we have to ask ourselves, are we people who are rejecting God's word even when it's a word of grace and forgiveness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the experience of Herod, as we think about his hostility uh, to the truth, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, humble our own hearts, that we would not be people who live based on our circumstances or people who simply try to save our own face and reputation. Lord, we ask that you would go before us. Make us a people who acknowledge your way is best,